Will you stand with me as we read the first few verses of it? In honor and respect of God's holy word. The biblical precedent for that, by the way, is in Nehemiah. When they went to Nehemiah and they got through and were in the middle of the work of rebuilding the wall, Ezra and the leadership read the Bible to the congregation and they stood up while he read it. So that's why we do it, just to remind us of the honor and respect that the Lord who wrote it and it reveals is given the respect and honor he's due. Let's, let's read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who keep, who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. You may be seated. Thank you for standing up. I know we're going to have to do some introductory work here this morning. It's going to take up most of our time, but I think it's helpful and necessary. As far as church anecdote, about two years ago or so, we started doing a verse-by-verse study of Revelation. We went through and got to the chapter 4, as I recall, or maybe even chapter 5. In that journey, I was introduced to a view of the timing, not the date, not the date of the rapture, but the timing of the rapture as it relates to the 70th week of Daniel, which is the last seven years of this age, and we don't know when that's going to begin. But um, I was preaching from a few that held, and it's widely held, that the rapture fits into the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And there was a view that I was presented with that holds that it's going to be further into the 70th week, around 75% into it, and not at the beginning of it. Whether or not that turns out to be true or not, and one day we'll find out, and which one, which of those views turn out to be so is not a basis for Christian fellowship. If I hold a view that it's at the beginning, or maybe it's three quarters into that 70th week, and you hold a different view, uh, doesn't mean that I'm a Christian and you're not, or vice versa. If we repent toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ and believe that the Bible is the infallible and errant word of God from beginning to end, and we have different views on those things, those are non fellowship issues. Doesn't mean they're not important, it's just that they're non fellowship issues. I don't believe that that. Is a test for Christian fellowship. So by the time we get finished with this, if you hold a view that's different than the one that, that's taught, um, but it caused me to pause, and I said, okay, here's the deal. Let's, let's suspend and put on hold our study of Revelation, and let me go into this and look at this, and over the past while I've done that, to see whether or not this view is biblically sound. Here's what I do know about it. Whatever view we hold about, not the date. If anybody calls a date about the Lord's return, you can write them off. They're a false prophet. Don't ever listen to anybody who does that. Matter of fact, don't just say, well, I'll listen to that part, but I'll ignore the rest. Ignore everything they say. Don't ever listen to anybody if they ever set a date about the coming of the Lord. The Bible's clear that God has not revealed that to us. And 
We're not to know it. We just know it's going to happen. But the ti- not, the, not the timing of the rapture, but how it occurs or when it occurs in relation to the 70th week of Daniel. And so, okay, what's the 70th week of Daniel? And many of you, I know you know what that 70th week is. Daniel prophesied of some empires that will be raised up. And he said that this, these empires will be raised up over the span of a, a 70th week period. And the, 70, the week is actually a seven-year period, not seven days. So when he says, Daniel says one week, that actually means seven years. And what's happened is 69 weeks of the 70th weeks that Daniel said precede the Lord's coming have already passed. In the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity, which we read about in Isaiah, God raised up the Medo-Persian Empire headed by Cyrus the Great. And he prophesied that Cyrus would be his servant. He called Cyrus by name and told what he was going to use him to do 150 years before he was born. Only God can do that. He said, he called him proper name, Cyrus, my servant. And he said, I'm going to have him go into the northern part of Babylon. He's going to take over Babylon. He's going to set my captives free. You're going to go back to Israel and you're going to rebuild the temple and the wall that surrounds the city. The building of the the rebuilding of the temple from that moment until Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the last time while he was on the earth and palm branches are there to meet him, the king, coming into his city to sit on a throne that we know he will one day sit on, but not yet. From the time that the rebuilding of the temple took place to when Jesus entered was 483 years. Now, the prophetic calendar is on hold now. Alright? That stopped. Now, after that time period now, we now entered into the age of the church where Jesus is calling people to himself from Jew and Gentile alike to build a kingdom called the church. And during that church age, we don't know how long that's going to last. So the 69th week is on hold. We're now in the in time period between the 69 weeks and the 70th week, which will begin the last seven years on this old earth that we know of. Does that make sense? Y'all got that? So I would ask you to discipline yourself anymore in your... Speaking of the seventy, uh, the speaking of the tribulation period, do not call it the tribulation period, but call it the seventieth week of Daniel. So when you say the tribulation, don't call it that. Call it the seventieth week of Daniel. That's what the Bible identifies it with. It is the seventieth week of Daniel. We're waiting on that to happen. That is going to happen, and we don't know when that's going to happen. But we're in that holding pattern between the end of the sixty-ninth week and the beginning of the seventieth week. We have the book of Revelation and there are schools of thought about how to interpret it and that's what I want to go over this morning. I'm going to, God willing, share with you that I'm so glad that God had us wait and put the direction we were on on hold because I've come to believe that this view of the timing of the rapture is biblically accurate and sound. But here's what I know about any view about the timing of the rapture. 
it's like any other view about the timing of any, or about any subject in the Bible. The correct interpretation would have to be this. It would have to be an interpretation that makes all that's said about it fit together. The view that we were looking at, which is called pre-tribulation rapture, you have to kind of shove some things in there and you have to uncomfortably make some things fit that don't quite fit in the text in order to make it all flow together. It's almost like getting to the end of a piece of, or get, putting together a big piece of puzzle, and you see a piece, and you want to get rid of, you want to get finished with the puzzle, and you you see a piece that almost fits a spot, but you know it's not the right one, and you just go, well, I'm just going to put it there and just kind of, it's not ideal, but at least it fits. Well, every view I've ever seen of the rapture is that way, except this one. This one seems to draw everything that God has said and is said about the. 70th week and the timing of the rapture as it relates to that 70th week to make it put together. And that's the view that has to be the accurate one. Our accuracy is attested to the fact that it makes them all fit together and this one does. So I'm excited about getting there. But here's the deal. Even if we differ after it's over with, you're still my brother and my sister. And we still know that here's what we do know. Jesus is coming again. And so we're going to journey through this, but I want to put that on hold. If ever... You hear something that comes from this pulpit, not just from me or anybody who occupies it, and you have a check in your spirit about something, and you say, maybe that's not sound or so. Don't go talk about whoever said it to other people in the church. Just come to me directly. That's what these folks did, by the way. And we sat down and had a long, meaningful discussion about it. And I'll listen to you. If I don't, then you need to take me before the church and discipline me. Or whoever. You want you to be like the Bereans to take what you hear and compare it with Scripture and see if these things are so. But don't just stop there. If you determine that they're not so, help me by coming to me and telling me why you think it's not. And if we come to the place where it's clear that I'm in the wrong, I want to fix it from right here or whoever said it. If it comes to a place where you're wrong, then you need to repent and we'll come together. But that's all healthy. That's not. I'm not threatened by that. I'm threatened when it doesn't happen. Um, so you you want to pick up your Bible. We're not Catholics. I'm not going up here and read the Bible for you and tell you what it says and tell you to stay away from it. So you might dare compare what I'm saying with the Scriptures. And nobody in here does that. I know that. But what I'm saying is, is you check out the Bible and read it for yourself. And I know you guys do that. And I'm so grateful. Look carefully at the text. We're going to talk about the background of the book and the ways that it's primarily interpreted. You know from your past exposure to this book and, and, and you among us have had exposure to it at varying levels that it's pretty much uncontested that the Apostle John wrote this or God wrote it through him. He gave the revelation to him. Now we're talking about John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John and the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And by this time he was an old man, an elderly man. I'm sorry, an elderly man and he enjoyed a ministry at the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus, you'll recall, is the first church that's mentioned in the messages to the seven churches in the letter. He was ministering there. And what happened to him is that because of his faithful preaching of the gospel, he was arrested and exiled to a penal island named the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos, which was an island they used uh, to um, 
for exiles located in the, uh, uh, the southwest part of the Aegean Sea. So it was his faithful preaching of the gospel that landed him where he received this revelation. The setting at the time is important. At the time, the emperor of Rome, and by the way, it's a very widely held, even though there's dispute over it, but it's pretty well widely held for a variety of reasons that the letter was written somewhere around A.D. 95 to 97. At the time that it was written, Domitian was the emperor of, 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 of the leader of Rome. And he demanded that he be worshipped. That doesn't constitute a problem for pagans. Pagans just add that to their worship. The, the one group of people that that constitutes a problem for is Christians. Um, because we're, we're revealed in the scriptures that God is one. He's one in three. Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And there are no gods beside Him. And it is a sin to acknowledge or worship any other God because they're not existent. We know in Scripture that to do so is idolatry. We know in Scripture that idolatry is demonic. And the Bible teaches that behind every idol is the devil, a demon. So that causes a problem for Christians. They don't bow. We don't bow. Not legitimate ones. So what that did, as you would expect, was triggered a great deal of persecution against the church. A new wave, if you will, of persecution. And this new wave of persecution during this time was more widespread than what happened during the previous emperor's time, during Nero. During Nero's time, most of the intense persecution was confined to Rome. By this time, it went everywhere to include, of course, Ephesus, which is where John was. His banishment as a Christian preacher reflects a policy of active hostility on the part of the state toward the church. That's going to become more and more familiar to us in our culture. Not passive tolerance, which is what we once saw, but active hostility. Active hostility. It put Christians subject to public ridicule, economic boycott. That's happening right now in America. Imprisonment, exile, and death. John received the brunt of that. But of the sovereign will of God, he got him to a place to give him a revelation that he wanted to get to the Ephesus church and to all of us to encourage us this way. And this is what I hope you take away this morning. <laughs> he sends a letter to him in the middle of intense persecution that only stood to get worse. And he says to them through this letter, God is on his throne. That has never changed. That's the case now. And it always will be. And listen, you ever heard, have you ever heard the expression, read the back of the book as a Christian and find out that we win? You ever heard that? Has anybody ever heard that? I read the, book of, I read the back of the book and we win. In other words, go back to the end of the Bible 
and you see all the turmoil and all that's been going on and you find out in the end that the triumph is from Christ and His kingdom and those who are part of it, right? That's not where you find out the victory. You go back to Genesis 3.15. It's where the victory is manifest, but where the victory is promised is all the way back to the first book of the Bible where Jesus said to the enemy, God said to the enemy, I'm going to send a seed from the woman, referring to Jesus, and you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. It's promised right there. So the Bible isn't a narrative where there's no victory seen or promised, and then we find out at the end, it's an exceedingly good end. No. It's seen and promised all the way back from the first book. Praise his glorious name. In other words, this is a book of extreme hope. It's a book of extreme hope. I guess you wouldn't be surprised to know that because of the complexity of the book and the symbolism of the book, there are many pastors. I hear quotes like this all the time, especially now that I've been studying it, who stay away from the book of Revelation. They say it's just unknowable. Let's don't mess with it. There are some that even doubt. Martin Luther was among them. Even doubt whether or not it should be included in the canon of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the reformers had very little to say about end times. And I think one of the reasons why is because is you can't you only got several battlefronts that you can that you can wage at one time. And at the time it was over scripture and the authority of scripture and the sufficiency of scripture and over the fact that the just shall live by faith, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That was the battlefront right there. And certainly the hierarchy and the priesthood of the believer and all the things that come from that and the abuses the Catholic Church imposed on on on, on the Bible. So they didn't really get involved a lot in the end times. As a matter of fact, Calvin never wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. You won't find it. And it caused a source of great consternation and pain and conflict inside Martin Luther's heart. Some even today still cast doubt on whether or not it belongs in the Holy Scripture. But yet, we just read that we're promised a blessing from reading it, keeping it, and heeding it. So by ignoring it and staying away from it simply because we're intimidated by it, and it is can, it can be intimidating. We're cheating ourselves and the church out of a blessing. And I don't want to see us cheated. I don't want you cheated out of anything that God's done for you and to enjoy everything that God's done for you. As a fellow believer, I want that for you and I hope you want that for me and I'm sure you do. This is a book of joy. This is a book of hope. This is a book of expectation. This is a book that anchors us now in the present because we have confidence in what's going to happen in the future. Think of the turmoil that happens inside people's lives because of their doubts about the future nowadays. Think about the things that we read in research after research and poll after poll that say now we have a generation of Americans who do not believe that their children are going to have it better than them. There is a nervousness. There is a tension. Look at all that's going on in the world. You read the world's headlines, and if you didn't have the book of Revelation to anchor you, and we didn't have the hope of His return, we would fall into that, and that's why we sometimes do. The Bible says in Psalm 37, don't fret when people bring evil schemes to pass that only causes harm. Delight yourself in the Lord. Stay in the land and do that, and while you do that, you feed on His faithfulness. 
I don't know of another way to feed on His faithfulness except by the Word of God. That's where I get my comfort from. Somebody asked me once a long time ago at our previous church. He said, you know what, Brother Lindsay, you encourage everybody and you have the gift of encouragement. Where do you get your encouragement from? And I just immediately, I, I didn't plan on saying this. I said, from the Word of God. It's truth too. That's why I got this. I drug out this older Bible. I got a much nicer Bible that the Foxes gave me that I greatly appreciate. But I drug out this one because I used it in one of the most difficult time periods of my life. And it is full of notes and dates on things that God spoke to me that anchored me through that time. And I, money wouldn't buy this Bible because of what all God did through me, uh, to, with me and sustain me through it. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are four ways primarily that it's interpreted. Number one, and I'm gonna, we're gonna, the fourth one is the way we're going to look at it, but number one is, is, is referred to as the preterist, preterist interpretation of Romans. It's P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. The preterist view. That comes from the Latin, which means past. Past. Here's what this view holds. That this is just an historical record of the events of the first century Roman Empire. They hold to this view and say that the second coming is really what happened in the destruction of the temple in AD 70 that Jesus prophesied would indeed happen and that this is a historical record of things that have already happened. This view is prominent and widely held among Roman Catholics. Surely part of the reason that the Roman Catholics hold this view is because in Revelation chapter 17, a false system of religion is spoken of in the end times. There will be a false prophet that holds and is, is head over that false system of religion who will be the right-hand man of the Antichrist. And it says that that false system of religion would come from the cities of seven hills. If you know anything about Rome, Italy, Rome, Italy is known as the city of seven hills. So, in order to dismiss that that could be speaking about the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholics say this is a historical, it's already passed, and that way they get a pass out of being seen to be the possible harlot religion. This epicenter is in Rome. So obviously, cannot be the right interpretation of this. That has nothing to do with this. That, that, that doesn't give comfort in the second coming. It would give no comfort and offer no comfort to the people who are suffering in Ephesus, the hope that is promised. The book itself says it is a prophecy. We'll talk about that more later. The book itself says it is a prophecy numerous times. So therefore, that could not just be an historical account of events up to the time that it was writing. The next one would be Number two, the historical view. The historical view. This view holds... Now, there's a difference between that one and preterist. I know they sound the same. But the historical view holds that it's a record of church history from the apostolic times until the present. To hold this view means that the text is highly allegorized, which is dangerous in and of itself. When you hold this view, the allegories and possibilities are endless. And as such, there's little or no agreement upon, among people who hold this view. 
It undermines the claims the book makes itself about the fact that it's prophecy. It would have, again, offered no comfort to first century believers and they would have not been able to understand the book. And it says that there are no literal, historical ways. The only way to look at it is historical. Surprisingly enough, and it may come as a surprise to to you all, um, many of the Reformers held that view. Many of them. Um, The Reformers got it right in a lot of places, and we thank God for them. As a matter of fact, on October 31st of 2017, next year, um, we'll mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Big deal in church history. We're the beneficiaries of it today. Number three, Idealist. So in other words, when it came to the Gospels, it came to the Gospel itself and faithfulness of the Scripture and standing tall. They were great. But when it came to end times, ooh. Number three would be the idealist. The idealist. Or it could, you could say the allegorical method of interpretation. This says that it's neither prophecy nor is it history. It's just a bunch of allegories. It depicts the book as an allegorical story of the picture of the timeless struggle between good and evil. That's what it is. So it's like a way of a book that you would sit down and read with your children and say, now see there, there's good, there's evil, there's a conflict between the kingdoms, it, you know, there's all this going on, and we can lift some understanding of that. I'll tell you the danger of it. You look at any of these views and start messing with the Scriptures like that, you say, okay, we'll just limit that to the end times. Do you think that ever happens? That we just limit that to hen times? This was a view that was popular at Harvard at the time. Harvard University was set up as a training school for pastors. And it is anything but now. If you don't mind the store over time, and you don't insist upon biblical truth and stand on it, and don't compromise on it, that's what winds up happening. The drift. Do you think for one minute the enemy plays games like this and says, you know what, if I can just get you to compromise that much, that's all I'm asking. No, he says, okay, if I got you to compromise that much, I, 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 I really believe I can get you to compromise a little bit more. And then that works, and then that works, and then that works. There's no limit. He doesn't say, well, I don't just want to mess with you just a little bit. You start messing with the end times and writing them off as allegorical, this is where you wind up. You wind up saying that the virgin birth was allegorical. And you wind up saying that six days don't mean six days. And seventh day doesn't mean the seventh day. And oh, by the way, that doesn't mean that. And that couldn't be the first man and a woman. And on it goes. It's an attack on the biblical authority, the authority of God's Word. There's nothing new about it, but we must be aware of it. That means that robs the book of its prophetic value. And there again, it makes interpretation and lifting meanings that we can come to an agreement with almost impossible. If you can categorize everything, then whatever crawls up out of the pit could be a helicopter. And that's what winds up happening. And you would be amazed at the fanciful things that they come up with. The historical views even come up with a way to find the French Revolution inside the text. That would have meant nothing to somebody at Ephesus who was going under punishment and, and, and persecution for their faith. Do what, they would say? Number four is where we are, and this is where we'll land unapologetically, and it's called the futurist view. The futurist view, F-U-T-U-R-I-S-T, futurist view. This is what we hold, and this is, I just don't see how anybody could 
faithfully say it's anything else but this. And that is this. That the first three chapters are what they are. There's an introduction. Then there's chapters 2 and 3 that speak to the churches. The seven churches that are spoken to that we can learn from now. But chapters 4 through 22 are events that are yet to come that are in the future. Hence, futurist view. You're going to have to get out your Bible, if you will. You already got it out. But I'm going to give you these scriptures, and I could just quote them to you, at least quote the references, but I'd rather not do that because I want you to see it for yourself. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The words of this prophecy. It claims prophetic revelation for the first time there. Then, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, if you'll go over there with me. Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. Revelation 19 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation chapter 22, if you will, verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22.18 For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. 22.19 And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. If you're keeping account, that is, inside the book itself, seven claims of prophecy. I know prophecy can mean the Word of God, but prophecy can also mean the Word of God attesting to future events. And in that context, it's plain that that's what that means here. So, what are we left with? We're left with only one way to look at this book. Biblically and accurately with integrity, I believe, and that is that it is a chronicle of future events, things that are yet to happen. This is the only view, by the way, that demands that they look at, we look at the Bible the way we always look at it. And it's called the literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutical. <laughs> Say that five times. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. In the science of biblical interpretation, the literal, grammatical, historical revelation, the revelation is interpreted 
using the way you'd interpret anything. In the literal way it's said, in the context in which it's said, and the history that makes up the time frame in which it was said. So this is the way we're going to look at it. I know you think, well, I've never heard of those other views. I want you to know that you are listening to, and you have listened to, and I bet you, I suspect that you're listening to now people that hold one or more of the other views besides the futurist view. If you started looking into their doctrine, you would find out. Now, I mean that that does not discredit their ministries. It doesn't say that their ministries are discredited, but I cannot help but believe that it affects them somehow. I don't know why it is, and it's amazing to me that we can use the literal, grammatical, historical way of interpreting the Bible for all the books of the Bible except Revelation. Why would we stop doing it there? But many do. So therefore, I want you to know that this is not secondary or of secondary importance. This is primary and of primary importance in looking at this book. And it does differ from many ways that many people that you know and love and respect and shouldn't disrespect is different than the way we're going to look at it. So, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. And while we're at it, there are a couple of things I want us to observe about the revelation itself. Number one, it is prophetic. That is the character and nature of the book. So they'll give you six attributes of the book that I want you to think of as we launch out into our study of it. First, it's prophetic. That's number one, it's prophetic. Seven times, we just mentioned seven times the book itself claims that. Number two, and I really just love this one. It's an open book. It's an open book. This is not a book of dark sayings. This is a book of rainbow sayings. This is a book of light. This is a book of great discovery. This is a book of transfiguration. This is a Jesus who came with his flesh over him. And in the book of Revelation, he in effect takes us up to the mount where three of his disciples got to go with him and takes his glory, takes his flesh off and displays his glory to us. There is nothing dark or hidden about this book. Quite the contrary. Look what it says about itself. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm cautioning you about this. When you think of Revelation, help us, help me, because I have struggled with this. When you think of the book of Revelation, do not think of it as a book of prophecy. Think of it as a book about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It says what's going to happen at the end with His kingdom coming down to earth, and He's going to put an end to all injustice and evil. It says that. These are things that He will do. These are things that are going to come to pass in fulfillment of everything that's promised about Him in the Bible. But when you think of Revelation, draw near to it, because it is a revelation of your dear, precious, loving, compassionate Lord, Savior, and life. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a book of prophecy. It is a prophetic look at His second coming. But it's the unveiling of our Lord. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't you look how it said. Look at Daniel chapter 12 verse 4. Now we're going to have to do a lot of looking at Daniel as we go through this. And we must. But look at Daniel 
Turn over to it, if you will. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. And I want you to contrast something. I love this. <laughs> it's so cool. You'll know that every book in the New Testament has an Old Testament sister. For instance, the book of Ephesians has a sister in the New Testament. You know what it is? Anybody? Joshua. It's Joshua. And so therefore, you, you relate and correlate those back and two. The Old Testament sister to the book of Revelation is Daniel. And look at it. Here's what it is right here. Watch this. It says, Daniel 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, look, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, look at Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. He's told to shut up the book for a time. Shut it up. And look at Revelation chapter 22. Go over with me. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 10. And He said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of the book of this book, for the time is at hand. Daniel's told to shut it up, and John is told to open it up. And that's what we have. We have an open book. We've got insight. Can you imagine? Do you know the morbid fascination that people have with the future? Astrology and all the other counterfeit efforts of the enemy to get people to latch their hopes onto something that men have to say that can't see beyond the next minute and can't even accurately discern the minute they're living in. That are spiritually blind by the God of this age can give us no insight. Can get so desperate like Saul that he conjured up and went to the witch at Endor. You'll remember. And when he was on, he was in rebellion against God and he was so desperate from a word from God because the prophet was no longer there. And he got, went to the witch at Endor and he asked her to conjure up. You remember? Asked her to conjure up Samuel. And Samuel looks like he did in life. You think that was Samuel? It wasn't Samuel. Samuel didn't look like that in life. If he did, he wouldn't be eternal. That was a conjure up and a fake revelation from the enemy, I believe. You get desperate, you want to know what's going on, you want some hope to latch on to, open the open book because the seals are open now. Next, it's a numerically structured book. I'm going to tell you this right now. Listen to me. <laughs> underneath the Scriptures in the English text, underneath in the Greek and Hebrew in which it was written, there is a, um, a, numer a numerical system underneath the, what's clearly seen to us and the Bible that attests to its authenticity because nobody could put that together except God. We'll get into that. It's fascinating. But there is a numerically structured part of this book and not only the numbers that are spoken of, the man of number of man is six. Number of God is perfection. The best man can ever do is six. We can never reach seven. The only way we can get to seven and perfection is through Jesus. The number of resurrection is three. The number of grace is five. We'll go on and on and on, but there's some other things that we can live from. Number four, it is a highly symbolic book. That's true. It is a high symbolic. We own that. We own that. But here's, there's a good reason for that. This is at least what we know the reason for that is. And that is this. Because it was written for the church, not only to the church it was written to at the time, but the church 
that would come to be beyond that. It had to have symbolism in it for everybody of every age to be able to understand it. Words change meaning over time. The way a word is understood and was understood a decade ago or even a hundred years ago may be understood differently today. So he uses symbolism because here's things that don't change. The sun doesn't change. The sun looks like it did today as it did to John when he was baked by it while he was in the Isle of Patmos. The moon looks like it does today. The stars look like they did today. All of these symbols are transcendent. And they're allegorical. And when the Bible speaks allegorically, it says it. And we understand it allegorically using kind of common sense. It's symbols used to communicate literal meanings. We do that all the time. It's a symbolic term which conveys a literal meaning. Like for instance, if I said, you know what, I saw Henry yesterday and I said something to him and he got so angry at me, he hit the ceiling. Henry, or if I said to you, I spoke to Henry yesterday and I said some things to him, made some observations and he hit the ceiling. And you would go, I didn't know Henry could jump that high. Henry hit the ceiling? You wouldn't ask me that. You know immediately what I mean by that. Henry got mad at me. We do that all the time. Jesus did that. John did that. In John 12.32, go look at it with me. Look at John 12.32. When it says that the, the truth is signified by the Holy Spirit, and that's what it's um, in the first part of the book it says, He sent and signified it, the words of Revelation, by His angel to His servant John. Well, John did that in John 12, 32. Go look at it. And you're already there already. I'm, I'm behind you. Look at John 12, 32. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself, this He said, signifying by what death He would die. The word signifying in the Greek underneath that is the same word underneath Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. Signify. He said lift it up to signify the death that we knew He died on which was the cross. He did that in John chapter 21. Same thing. Same apostle. Matter of fact, He's the only one who uses this word in the Greek New Testament. And look at 21 verses 18 and 19. Most assuredly I say to you when you were younger you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, what? Signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He basically saying, Peter, you know what you're going to do? They're going to take you into custody and you are going to, against your will, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be, you're going to die for me. And he said, he used the analogy of an older person being taken where they don't want to go to signify the truth that we all know that Peter understood about what he said. That's exactly what's going on in Revelation. So it is a prophetic book. It is an open book. It's a numerically structured book. It's a highly symbolic book. And dear ones, this is very important. It is based on the Old Testament. It's based on the Old Testament. I told you a while ago and mentioned a while ago the number of verses in the book. That's very important. Because the symbolism in the book should not intimidate us and need not intimidate us because the symbolism of the book 
is understood and can be understood by the Old Testament. By the Old Testament. I'm trying to find in my notes and it just went away from me. Boy, I wrote out about that. Here it is. It's 404 verses in Revelation. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 of them allude to Old Testament scriptures. Percentage-wise, that means that 69% of the book can only be understood by looking at what the Old Testament says about it. If the Bible is going to be, if the Bible, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. If we're going to understand and learn from the Bible, we got to take the whole thing, see what the Bible has to say about it. And the Revelation demands and forces us to do what we should be doing all along. Sixty-nine, close to seventy percent of the Book of Revelation is an illumination of and alludes to Old Testament promises and truth. So. This is the character and nature of this book. And it is the revelation of our Lord. And to be honest with you guys, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is a logical ending to Holy Writ. It's a logical ending to Holy Writ. We see in Revelation the beginning of things, or in, in, we see in Genesis the beginning of things, and we see in Revelation the consummation of things. In Genesis 1-1, we see where we were created. In Genesis 21 and 20, 22, in, Genesis, I mean, in Revelation 22, we see a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, we see Satan's first rebellion and the fruits of it. In, Gen- in Revelation 21-1, we see Satan's final judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, we see sin making an entrance into the earth. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, we see the end of sin. Hallelujah. And its awful consequences. And by the way, that is how we know, a reason we know that this cannot be a historical book. Because, I don't know about you, but just testifying to me, I still struggle with sin. Sin is not over with in my life. And it's not over with in yours. And according to what I saw on Fox News this morning, it's not over with in this world either. So it cannot be a historical account of what's going on. We're being, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin. And one day we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. In Genesis, it shows the curse of this world. In Genesis chapter 4, the curses and the fallout of the fall was seen and disclosed to us. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, we see no more curse. Hallelujah. In Genesis 3.19, we see death entering into the world. Revelation 19, we see no more death. We see no more sin. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 13, we see the first marriage between Adam and Eve, the first Adam. And in Matthew chapter, I mean, in Revelation chapter 19, we see the marriage of the second Adam to his bride, the church. Amen? It just makes sense. Who but God could have written the Bible? Who but God could have written the Bible? The only people that doubt its claims are the ones who have not taken the time enough to investigate them. Truthfully. Isn't that so? Now, don't you look at it quickly and we'll close. It's the revelation. Don't you look at it now. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants the things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Listen to the progression. 
God the Father <laughs> gives to God the Son the revelation. So really it's a letter initially from the Father to His Son. And He's saying, you're saved forever now. You're saved forever if you're saved because it's the Father saying to the Son, everything that you did beyond raising you from the dead, which was my stamp of approval over what you did, everything you did, I fully accept. I embrace your bride for eternity. I give them away to you. I accept everything. And buddy, my son, here's how you know it. You're going to come to this earth again and it's not going to be through a manger and it's not going to be with swaddling clothes and all of that. It's going to be on a white horse riding with a sword out of your mouth to bring judgment on the unrepentant and glory to the saints who repented. It's God's love letter to His Son. The bride has been promised. The inheritance has been purchased. And He says, Here, here it is. This is what I promised you all along through your faithful obedience. I accept everything that you did. And dear ones, the reason that we can rest confidently in what Christ did is because God accepted what Christ did. And revelation is proof of it. Isn't that wonderful? God spoke to His Son. He said, Son, let me tell you about the future plans I have for you. Let me tell you how it's going to... I mean, to, to razor sharp precision, let me tell you what that last week's going to mean. Let me tell you what it's going to mean. You know why it's going to mean that? Because you did exactly what I told you to do. You died on the cross, and I promised you that if you did that, and with your blood you purchased a bride, that I would clean up a bride fit for you through your life and deliver them to you one day in a marriage supper that will beat all others. And it's disclosed in this book. And then he turns around to an angel and says, okay, now, think of the, think of the confidence God gives. Did you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the Lord will confide in those who fear Him. Ever thought about that? I confide in God all the time. Don't you? I figure this. Lord, there's no use in not telling you something because you know everything. So how foolish is this to withhold something from you? And then the Lord says, well, I tell you what, in my son, do you know what I've decided to do? I will confide in you. Let me tell you what I'm up to. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to give you an advance notice and promises. And so what he does is he speaks these sweet somethings into our ear about what he did and purchased and how we're included with his son. So look what it says. God gave it to the son. Then... The son gave it to an angel. And the angel gave it to John so that John could give it to us. And you going to ignore that? I'm sorry. I want to dive deep. I want to dive deep and drown in it. Immerse me in this. I want to know everything there is to be known and could be known about it. Don't you? We're on an exciting journey. Jesus is coming again. And God promised that. And this is how we know we're eternally saved, dear ones. Because God has eternally promised eternal fruitfulness and eternal life to everyone who comes to Him through His Son that He Himself draws. Amen. Now think about that. And so God says, Come here, Son. He's at the right hand. Let me show you some things. And then the Son says to the angel, Give that to John. But we've got to get him off the track. We've got to get him out of the church of Ephesus. We've got to get him to a place where he, we just got him. That's it. No distractions. 
So let's put him over on this penal island. He's been faithful all these years. He'll listen. And then the angel comes down there and says, you know, you've got to write this down. And then John writes it down and sends it to the church at Ephesus and says, you guys are being persecuted. Listen, faithfully endure because I want you to know something. There is eternal life waiting on you in front of your Lord and you'll live with Him forever. And all the evil that's pitted against you, He will put down. Now the question is, if these things so, what kind of people ought we to be? If this is so, what kind of people ought we to be? Isn't that a good question? Could we say not? Isn't it better to frame it this way? And I made a huge mistake. And maybe maybe it's better that I did. Because it gives emphasis on it. It's not if these things should be... If these things are so, how should we live? It should be since these things are so, how should we live? Because if God promised it, it's so. Amen? Look at 2 Thessalonians. We'll close with this. Chapter 1. And guys, we've got to go all over the Bible. Nobody's nervous about that because you do it anyway. We've got to go all over the Bible to study Revelation. And God willing, we will. We've already gone to Daniel this morning. Very fitting because that's the sister testimony in the Old Testament. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is it fitting, because your, great, your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. What's promised here? A promise of judgment and wrath and the end of all evil and a promise of eternal reign in future glory for the repentant. I don't know that you can say it better than Meredith expresses it on her prayer request every week now. The joy of my salvation. Let the joy of my salvation, the joy that I learn of and promised here in Christ, let that joy, let my hope that's anchored in the Lord and, and, and that hope and that joy I trust through the study of Revelation is only in your life going to grow. If you're repentant, I believe if we'll study this book and we'll immerse ourselves in this book, your joy over what awaits is going to grow. You're not going to wait to experience it to experience the joy that should come from it. You're going to experience it now. That's God's intent. 
and that joy over the salvation that He reached and redeemed you, coupled with, coupled with, let the joy of my salvation, coupled with what awaits the unrepentant, move me out of complacency so that I will faithfully and passionately share the gospel with other people. It's laid out right there, isn't it? The future glory that's promised the saints and the frightening future that awaits the unrepentant. Those two dear ones put together would do just that. It would, it would, it would awaken us from complacency and it would make us to the place where we want to prepare the way of the Lord and to make His path straight. Because we, while doing that, are declaring this one thing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen? So as we journey through this book, go with me. I encourage you, take it out, start reading it. Here's what I would ask too. Just like it happened the last go-around, this was two years ago. We put a hold and suspended this. We're in the next week, I guess. We put the 69th week on hold. Now we're in the 70th week of Rome, uh, Revelation. And somebody cared enough to approach me with something that they felt like was a, a, a different yet more biblical view. And I believe now after looking at it, I think it is. I agree with them. If we're going through this, and as we're going through this, and you crack open the Bible, and God puts something on your heart um, that, that we can benefit from, I appreciate you sharing it. And if while we're going through it, you look at it and go, hmm, and start turning this way like a cow looking at a new gate and go, boy, that just sounds odd what the pastor just said. Then come to me individually. Don't talk about me behind my back to everybody else. Just come to me individually, and I promise you, I will gladly receive what you got to say. And we'll crack up in the Bible and see what thus saith the Lord. That's always the case. But we need not be intimidated by this open book. We, we, and we, we better not neglect it. We better not ignore it. We better not have contempt toward it because we are being robbed of a blessing. There are seven blessings, seven verses that promise blessings by reading, hearing, and heeding what's in this book. In the book itself, there's seven. I might go over today. Seven. I want you to be blessed. And I have to tell you, I want to be blessed. I already have. And let's journey together. You know what? There's coming a day when we're going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. you imagine that? And we'll have a place card in front of the marriage supper place, and it's going to have a new name on it. They'll tell them what it's going to look like, Greg. Probably made out of gold. We won't care because Jesus will be sitting there and he'll outshine all of it. And we're going to sit in front of our Savior. And when he turns over, just like he did at the road to Emmaus, <laughs> and he breaks bread, <laughs> and, he, and, and that sparkling white garment, when he does that, those scars will still be there in a glorified body to remind us that we were purchased and had the right to sit there because of His blood. Amen? I can't think of a better way to celebrate that and to end this morning than to have the Lord's Supper and to remember that this is a preview of coming attractions. Just like we're going to sit here and do this right now, there's coming a day. Oh, Henry. There's coming a day we're going to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be the bride. We'll be the part of the bridegroom party, and our bride will sit there, and the Lord will break bread and we'll break it together. 
And we will do that forever.